Welcome to the Berkeley Journal of International Law's podcast, Trevo. I'm your host, Haley Duradawan, and this is The Current State. Hello, fans of international law. Welcome back to Trevo, or for our new listeners, welcome to Trevo. In either case, let me use the podcaster's refrain and say thank you for tuning in, and please do subscribe. This is our third episode of the current state season, so if you are already caught up, I thank you, and if you are not caught up, I encourage you to check out our previous episodes, after you listen to this one, of course. Think of all the fun facts you can share with people. What holiday party chat is not improved by casual international law discourse? You are correct. None. Now let me veer back on topic and introduce our guest host, Angela Chen. Hi, Angela. Hi, Haley. Thanks for coming to speak with us today. Now, I know a bit about what you're going to discuss, but can you share with our listeners just what it is that you're going to be talking about today? Absolutely. Last month, on September 24th, 2021, Huawei's Chief Financial Officer Meng Wanzhou and the U.S. Department of Justice entered an agreement that allowed Meng to return to China after being on house arrest in Vancouver. Meng was arrested on multiple charges, including conspiracy to commit bank fraud, bank fraud, conspiracy to commit wire fraud, and wire fraud. Shortly after Meng's release, China released Michael Kovrig and Michael Spaver from custody, and Kovrig and Spaver had been arrested and held as hostages against Meng's release. And now all three hostages have returned to their home countries. I am very interested in the discourses on both sides surrounding hostage diplomacy. And at the 76th session of the General Assembly of the United Nations, the Chinese and Canadian delegates presented their own countries as lawyer advocates of international law. In his speech at the UN General Debate, the Chinese delegate accused Canada of wantonly disregarding facts and laws. Meng's arrest, according to China, was a completely political matter that had no basis of law and was meant to suppress the development of Chinese technology. The arrests of Kovrig and Spaver, on the other hand, were based on laws and facts and were therefore of a different nature from Meng's arrest. The Canadian delegate, on the other hand, described Meng's arrest as an application of both Canadian and international law. The rule of law, according to Canada, permeated every aspect of the Canadian authorities' treatment of Meng. Meng was even said to have thanked the Canadian court and government for upholding the rule of law. Kovrig and Spaver didn't offer similar thanks to China. So China and Canada are not disputing the applicability of international law per se, but rather the extent to which their actions violate international law? Yes. So what I find so intriguing about their exchange is their invocation of international law. Both sides portray their own countries as upholding the law, and the other side as tarnishing it. In the Chinese delegate's speech, law is framed as discrete and oppositional from politics, which is also quite curious. Such framing of the relationality between law and politics is very much realist or neorealist. According to realism, international life is anarchical and power struggles are rampant. Institutions such as international law are merely epiphenomenal to international politics because they only reflect the interests of great powers. And great powers adhere to these institutions because they were the ones that created them in the first place. The institutions necessarily guarantee their interests. From this perspective, China's and Canada's discourses on upholding international law merely serve to cover up their power-thirsty interests and intentions. Does this somewhat mechanistic view of state behavior explain the centrality of international law in China's and Canada's discourses on hostage diplomacy? I don't really think so. 
the realist view takes states' identities and interests as somehow pre-given and stable over time. And it also neglects the essentially social nature of state interactions. That is to say, states are socialized and identities can in fact be learned and unlearned. As an important figure in international relations constructivism, Alexander Wendt argues, anarchy is what states make of it. So in the constructivist view, rules and norms, such as international law, serve to socialize states, shaping states' identities and interests. And in a famous piece by Martha Finmore and Catherine Sukink on international norm diffusion, they discuss the process of international norm diffusion and socialization. Norm influence consists of three stages, which are norm emergence, norm cascade, and internalization. Norm entrepreneurs, who are the actors that first created the norms, they first persuade a critical mass of states to embrace new norms, and then the norm leaders socialize other states to become norm followers in a process of norm cascade. Eventually, norm internalization occurs. Norms then take on a taken-for-granted quality that leads states to conform with the norms in an almost automatic manner. And now for the purpose of argument, I assume that China has been socialized into international norms to a lesser extent than Canada, because Canada was one of the funding members of the liberal international order that gave rise to the prevailing international norms. And if this is the case, what can we learn about China's socialization into international law and norms from its discourses on hostage diplomacy? To answer this question, I introduce a further distinction between institutional and normative socialization put forth by David Shamble. Shamble argues that socialization involves two stages. In the first stage, which is institutional socialization, a state complies with existing norms out of a conscious instrumental calculation. The state adopts international norms, not because it believes in those norms, but because doing so would allow it to reap the benefits of integration into the international community. And in the second stage, which is normative socialization, a state has deeply internalized the norms and complies with them because the internalization had successfully transformed the state's identity. In this stage, which Shampoo terms a value-based orientation has occurred, and the state has gone beyond rational cost-benefit analysis in adhering to international norms. Would you say that China is either institutionally or normatively socialized into international law norms? In my opinion, China hasn't been completely socialized into international law and norms, institutionally or normatively. The partial success of its institutional socialization is evident in its invocation of international law in its UNGA speech. Still, from China's increasingly muscular approach to foreign policy, we can see that there is still a discrepancy between international law's requirements on sovereign states and China's practices. For example, China adopted a very assertive stance on territorial disputes in the South China Sea. Maria Oliveira, a fellow travel contributor, referenced these territorial disputes in her podcast episode two weeks ago. The lack of success in socialization and the limits of normative socialization in particular stem fundamentally from China's distinct political culture, as well as its discomfort with Western liberal values. Although we need to be careful that the notion culture can be reifying and essentializing. Thank you for that analysis, Angela. Given all of your amazing research on this topic, my next question may be rather exasperating, but could you provide us with an overview of just what it is you want our listeners to take away from this China-Canada hostage dispute? Definitely. International norm diffusion and its discontents in the case of China raise a crucial question. 
which is to what extent is international law truly international? International law has failed to accommodate states with different cultural and historical experiences, such as China, and as such, it risks becoming a mere representative of the so-called Western experience. So I think, although looking at the mechanisms of international norm diffusion through hostage diplomacy could tell us something about the partial success of international norm diffusion today, we would all benefit from delving more deeply into the limits of international law as such. Thank you for speaking with us today, Angela. For those of you who would like to read Angela's companion Travaux article on the Canada-China hostage dispute, head on over to the Berkeley Journal of International Law's blog, Travaux. Thank you for listening. Travaux is brought to you by Haley Duradawan, Kayleen Kosla, and the members of the online team at the Berkeley Journal of International Law. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please write to us at berkeley.travaux at gmail.com. While we're committed to bringing you international and comparative law news and insight, our podcast is intended for academic and entertainment purposes only. The information presented is not legal advice and may not be current. Please check out the Berkeley Journal of International Law's blog, Travo. See you next week. Au revoir.